Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 8, Episode 43. In the last episode, I wrapped up with the places Zorah and Eshtol, the locations where Judges 13 reads that Samson's soul began to stir, and as found at the end of that chapter. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up at the beginning of Judges chapter 14, and pressing forward. And with that, let's get started. The first place mentioned in chapter 15 is Timnah, where Samson met the Philistine woman who would become his wife. Timnah, sometimes recorded as Timnath, was a Philistine city in Canaan, probably in or near territory originally allotted to Dan. Modern archaeologists identified the ancient site with the tell lying on a flat alluvial plain in the Sorek Valley, about four miles, seven kilometers northwest of Beit Shemesh. There were a couple other places with the same name or similar names, one located in the hill country of Judah and mentioned in Joshua 15. I covered that place in volume one of the podcast. There was also a southern copper smelting site in the Araba Desert near Eilat. As for this one, the one associated with Samson, it's thought to be the same as the Tel Batash Mound, uncovered in the 19th century by a French archaeologist who identified it as a Roman military camp. In the years following, really the next century and a half, various digs were conducted at the site. The Tel is in the Sorek Valley at an access point from the coastal plain, through the lowlands, and into the central Judean mountains. In other words, at a strategic site. In Judges 14, Samson went down to Timnah in order to find a wife. On his way there, he tore apart a lion. Samson married a Philistine woman from Timnah and posed a riddle for the men of Timnah, which they were only able to resolve following the intervention of his wife and after she and her family were threatened. Continuous excavations during the 1980s and 1990s uncovered 12 layers of what appears to be uninterrupted settlement at the site through the Greek period, which was followed by sparse occupation nearby during the Byzantine period. Close by, and on the edge of the Soric Valley, or what remains of a Roman road leading to another settlement dating to the Stone Age through the Canaanite era. The Canaanites occupied the site during the Bronze, then Iron Ages. It was during this period that an earthen rampart was built, one that enclosed the 10-acre, 4-hectare site. Over time, this led to the Philistine period with continued construction, mostly of mud bricks likely reinforced by straw as was the technology at the time. All of this around the time of Samson. Moving forward a bit, archaeologists have uncovered fortifications and buildings from the Kingdom of Judah period, meaning during the 8th and 7th centuries BC. In one of the buildings, a ceramic pottery piece bearing a written LMLK seal was found. Seals of this sort were typically Hebrew seals stamped on the handles of large jars, first issued during the reign of King Hezekiah, around 700 BC, and uncovered mostly in and around Jerusalem. Nearby are the ruins of Kerbet Tibna, 
located about two miles, three kilometers southwest of Beth Shemesh, Israel. This, too, may be the biblical Timnah. One of the clues pointing in this direction are the similarities in the names. When explored by Edward Robinson, who visited the immediate area in the mid-19th century, it was abandoned. Almost a century later, William F. Albright made his way to the site, again identifying it as the place associated with Sampson. He recorded that it was littered with Greco-Roman and Byzantine debris, but found nothing from the Judean period. Excavations continued into the modern period, with numerous Middle Bronze Age artifacts being uncovered, providing a link to the Sampson era, and that's Timnah. While on his way to his wedding, and while he was alone, Sampson had a fateful encounter with a lion. While I've mentioned it before, I've never done the deep dive into the lions that were, at one time, native to the region, but are no more, at least not in the wild. The Barbary lion, sometimes called the North African lion, the Berber lion, or even the Atlas lion, and Egyptian lion, is now extinct in the wild. It may be even completely extinct. I'll get to the maybe part in a few minutes. The beasts lived in the mountains and deserts of what was known at one time as the Barbary Coast of North Africa, from Morocco to Egypt, with some likely venturing into Canaan. Most lions, at least how we think of them today, are native to the region south of the Sahara Desert, with a very small group in a tiny region of India. As for the Barbary lion, it was eradicated following the spread of firearms and bounties for killing lions. A comprehensive review of hunting and sighting records revealed that small groups of lions may have survived in Algeria until the early 1960s and in Morocco until the mid-1960s. Today, it is considered extinct in the wild. Until 2017, so very recently, the Barbary lion was considered a distinct lion subspecies. But morphological and genetic analyses of lion samples from North Africa, which were published in 2008, demonstrated that the Barbary lion does not differ significantly from other lion samples collected in western and northern parts of Central Africa. It also falls into the same group as the Asiatic lion and is also closely related to lion populations in West Africa. Barbary lions tended to range in color from light to dark tawny. Male lions had manes of varying coloration and length head-to-tail length of surviving stuffed males in numerous collections vary from nearly 8 feet to over 9, 2.5 meters to almost 3. Females were slightly smaller. Some manes extended over the shoulder and under the belly to the elbows. More about their manes in just a second. In 19th century accounts from hunters in the region, the Barbary lion was also claimed to be the largest lion with a weight of wild males ranging from 6 to 700 pounds, 270 to 300 kilos, though some question the accuracy of accounts from hunters as possibly being exaggerated, a fishtail. Captive specimens were much smaller, but then again, these lions were kept under such poor conditions 
that they may not have attained their full potential size and weight. The color and size of the lion's manes was long thought to be a sufficiently distinct morphological characteristic to consider it as a subspecies from other lions. But recent research has shown that there was so much variety between nearby lions that it was also more of a general characteristic than a different subgroup. Overall, the size of manes is not regarded as evidence for the Barbary lion's ancestry. Instead, results of mitochondrial DNA research support the genetic distinctness of Barbary lions in a unique type found in museum specimens that is thought to be of Barbary lion descent. The presence of this haplotype is considered a reliable molecular marker to identify captive Barbary lions. Barbary lions may have developed long hair manes because of lower temperatures in the Atlas Mountains region than in other African regions, particularly in winter. Results of a long-term study on lions in Serengeti National Park indicate that ambient temperature, nutrition, and levels of testosterone influence the color and size of lion manes. While the historical Barbary lion was seemingly distinct, its genetic uniqueness remained a matter of debate. In a comprehensive lion study from 2008, 357 samples of wild and captive lions from Africa and India were examined. Results show that four captive lions from Morocco did not exhibit any unique genetic characteristics, but instead shared mitochondrial haplotypes with lion samples from West and Central Africa. The study's results provided evidence for the hypothesis that this group developed in East Africa and some 118,000 years ago traveled north and west in the first wave of lion expansion. The researchers' dates, not mine. Climate changes, specifically the drying of the Sahara, led to a break in the connections between those once-related groups, dividing them into subgroups within Africa and later West Asia. Historical sightings and hunting records from the 19th and 20th centuries record that the Barbary lion inhabited Mediterranean forest, woodlands, and brush. The westernmost sighting of a Barbary lion reportedly occurred in the Anti-Atlas Mountains in western Morocco. Overall, the mighty beast primarily ranged from the Atlas Mountains in the Rif in Morocco to the mountain ranges in Algeria and Tunisia with smaller populations to the east in Egypt and Canaan. By the 1830s, lions may have already been eliminated along the coast of the Mediterranean and near human settlements. In Libya, the Barbary lion persisted along the coast until the beginning of the 18th century. It was completely gone in Tunisia by 1890. By the mid-19th century, the Barbary lion population had massively declined due to bounties for their pelts. The cedar forests of Algeria, along with the neighboring mountains, had lions until about 1884. The last recorded shooting of a wild Barbary lion was in 1942, near the Moroccan region of the Atlas Mountains. A small remnant population may have survived in remote areas until the early 1960s, with the last known sighting of a lion in Algeria occurring in 1956. Backing up, historical accounts indicate that lions occurred in the Sinai Peninsula, along the Nile, 
in the eastern and western deserts and along the maritime coast of the Mediterranean. In the early 14th century BC, Pharaoh Thutmose IV hunted lions in the hills near Memphis. The growth of civilizations along the Nile and in the Sinai Peninsula by the beginning of the second millennium BC and the desertification contributed isolating lion populations in North Africa. In Roman North Africa, lions were regularly captured by experienced hunters for living displays, including transport back to Rome. Later, Barbary lions were also kept in the menagerie at the Tower of London in the Middle Ages. Recently, two well-preserved skulls were excavated at the tower between 1936 and 1937. These skulls were radiocarbon dated to around 1280 to 1385 in 1420 to 1480, with DNA analysis showing them to be of the Barbary sort. In the 19th and early 20th centuries, lions were often kept in hotels and circus menageries. In 1835, the lions in the Tower of London were transferred to improved enclosures at the London Zoo. Results of DNA research revealed in 2006 that a lion kept at a German zoo is very likely a descendant of a Barbary lion. But five lion samples from this collection were not Barbary lions maternally. Nonetheless, genes of the Barbary lion are likely to be present in common European zoo lions, since this was one of the most frequently introduced subspecies. Many lions in European and American zoos, which are managed without subspecies classification, are most likely descendants of Barbary lions, or of mixed origins. Many of these may be descended from what was the now-deposed King of Morocco's pride of lions. And that's the Barbary lion, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week, when I'll continue with the history found around Samson. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes or wherever you get the podcast from. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.